How do the best data scientists in the world master their datasets, train their machine learning models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. what institution you're coming from, you can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. It's hard not to employ you. Like, it doesn't matter what field you're in or what is it that you're good at. If you're good at something, if you like something with passion, there is someone who really, really needs you. Our guest today is Susan Holcomb, and I'm, I'm super excited to introduce her not only because she's the former head of data at Pebble, which, if you don't know, was the world's first smartwatch company and still holds the record for largest Kickstarter fundraise in history, but also because she's super focused on something that I think a lot of people tend to neglect when they're trying to interview for roles in data science, and that's the idea of showing that you can build business value with data. Now, before we dive into our chat with Susan, a reminder to leave us a comment or a review if you like this episode. It really helps us understand what we're doing right, what we can improve, and it also helps us make sure that we can keep bringing in great guests like Susan. Uh, Susan, thanks so much for joining us for this. Yeah, of course. So one of the, the questions that we had when we were, we're talking about this, because you have such an interesting background, you've done so many different things. One of the things that really does stand out is that Pebble experience, in particular because it, it's a hardware company. And we spent so much time talking about software companies and how data science is leveraged there. And at least I find it a little bit harder to imagine how hardware companies leverage data science. So can you tell us a little bit about that and, and where the data science effort was focused at Pebble? Yeah, so Pebble is really interesting because I was sort of the first um, data person in the door there. So when I joined, um, we basically, I had no team. We had basically an empty database and not even any KPIs for how to measure um, how the watch was being used, if it was, you know, if the product was um, successful in the ways we want it to uh, be, um, much less doing anything like building products powered by data. So um, I think there are sort of two interesting things that we did at Pebble that were, um, you know, relevant to it being a hardware company and not a software one. Um, the first challenge you have is that you, these products are out in the world. <laughs> um, they might be on someone's wrist. They might be lying in a drawer just waiting for the ba battery to go dead. Mm. So one of the first things we did was um, try to figure out how we could tell um, whether the product was being used and for how long. And to do that, um, we had to get creative. Um, the 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 one of the challenges of working with hardware data is the data is not coming in a constant stream. So we had data coming off the watch that would be given back to us every um, hour or so in a rollup of all the things that happened. And part of that included accelerometer data of how much the watch had moved around. So by leveraging that piece of information. We were able to tell if the watch was in motion, and it turned out that it's very the accelerometer is very sensitive, um, and you can tell how many hours a day an individual is wearing the watch. Now, I know that when you get into the details of how <laughs> data scientists work with data, what we actually look at, it always does sound a little creepy. Um, but the reason why that was really important to us is it gave us all this interesting information that we could use to figure out what to do with the product going forward. 
one of the things we discovered was that about 10% of our population was wearing the watch 24 hours a day. I actually thought this was an error. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> that seems like noise to me. Um, I surveyed the office. Again, this was just me at the time by myself working. I just went around the office and I asked everybody, like, do you sleep with your watch on? And about 10% of the office did. Um, so that sort of validated that it wasn't just noise. The data was telling us something real. And that was a precursor. Again, this was, you know, before the days of the Apple Watch, Fitbit was out there, but they were very, doing things that were very different than what we were doing at Pebble, although they did end up acquiring the company a few years later. Um, but so that, that insight laid the groundwork for the idea that we would add um, sleep tracking in the future um, because we already had a customer base that was sleeping with their watch. Um, so that was sort of the first um, interesting challenge and I think success of working with data on a hardware product. Um, I think the second category is a bit more broad. Um, obviously, over time, we realized that health was a very important uh, feature, smartwatch feature that our users were kind of expecting that they'd be able to track their steps, track their sleep, and even eventually like track their heart rate. Um, so we worked a lot on problems in that domain and uh, worked around building data powered features that, um, you know, leverage step sleep and heart rate data. Um, but I think the unique thing that Pebble was able to do was because we had a robust app store, um, we could build our own data powered apps, kind of little skunk works projects um, as experiments for what we could do, like how we could leverage the fact that you're wearing this product on your body all the time. So one product that um, my team built was a little app that it basically sent you questions throughout the day about your mood <laughs> and what you've done in the past hour or so. Like, are you have you you know have you eaten? Are you drinking water? Did you have you exercised? Just little things like that. You could um, customize it with voice input. Basically, we were trying to take advantage of the fact that you're wearing this watch right on your wrist. You're not having to take a phone out of your pocket. So you can give feedback in a kind of uh, seamless way. So the fact that we had this unusual interaction model based on you know having a wearable product um, allowed us to collect this kind of intimate data set and then give each individual user feedback about like, hey, here's, here's how these activities impacted um, your mood over the day or over the week. Um, so yeah, so those were a couple of the interesting things about working with a smartwatch in particular. I'm curious about how you guys use the accelerometer to tell the difference <laughs> between I'm asleep with my watch and watch on a bedside table. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, this was very much, I, I have a physics background like all of you guys as well. So as a physicist, you're used to not having good data to work with, right? So, um, so I basically wanted to tell if I could find an inflection point in our accelerometer readings that would suggest to me that there was a break in what was noise and what was real. And so I basically just plotted all that, plotted out all of our accelerometer readings and saw that the graph like made a weird little zigzag um, that uh, suggested to me that below a certain cutoff point, I would say that the readings were noise. And so we use that cutoff point. That's where I saw a plot where, you know, we're getting 10% of the readings um, 
above the are, Right. So 10% of people are basically wearing their watch 24 hours a day. So they have readings above that cutoff point um, for 24 out of 24 hours. Um, and then I tested that against, I surveyed the office first, but I then sent a, a survey to a subset of our users and basically was able to see that my cutoff point was correct, like 100% of the time. Um, so we were lucky that um, we were able to distinguish between what was noise and what was just sleep. Um, I, not a sleep researcher, I don't really know all the details of how people move around in their sleep, but I was told that, that this does make sense that there are slight uh, movements throughout the night. So you can believe me or not, but what I what I took from that is like, it worked um, and and we were able to get good results off it. So what I find fascinating about the situation you were in there is that almost everything you're doing at that stage is like completely unprecedented, right? I mean, right. nowadays we're used to all these stock data sets, human activity recognition data sets using smartphones and all that. Um, Fitbit is a thing. But back then, like you're having to almost do, you're having to do all the conceptualization from scratch to even think about what models to use. Like, how is that? How is the process of just coming up with a draft of a strategy when there was no one else to help you and you were the only one there. I think that's what really excited me about taking the job. Um, I was doing consulting work at the time. I really didn't want to join a company, but when I got in the door at Pebble and I saw what a green field it was going to be and that you know there was a real need for this kind of systems level thinking that you just don't get to do in a lot of, um, data science jobs. You know, I had come from online gaming and that was a great first or early career experience for me because you have a really well-developed analytic structure and a well-developed sense of how you use data um, to drive value for the company. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't get to invent things. I didn't get to make up yeah. KPIs or, or just, you know, inform the executive team like, hey, here's how long people are, are using the product for, like those basic things. I never got to do that. So that was what really attracted me um, to this particular problem um, or this particular industry. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges was not so much in uh, kind of working through conceptually what data at a hardware company meant, but it was getting the buy-in from the rest of the leadership team mm. um, that a you can trust me and I'm doing things that are useful and b um, you know we should really make data a core part of the company. There's there's things we can do that will set our product apart um, if we can use our data in a smart way. And so I mean that was that was a journey. <laughs> um, I definitely focused early on on more of the analytics side of the business because. I knew that um, the product team, even the engineering team, and of course, um, Eric, the CEO, they were all very hungry for that information. That was stuff that was going to help them. That Those are things they can take to the board and say like, hey, here's all this great stuff we know. Here's how great we're doing. So that won me um, trust early on. And I mean, I think there are certainly things I could have um, done more efficiently looking back, but um I just continued to push from that core analytical understanding of the product, just push more and more for making data um, a part of what we did um, and getting more and more resources onto building products that would be and apps or the watch that would be powered by data. You're saying that you started out by 
doing some quick win type stuff where you were able to say, here are our stats, like here are stuff is looking good, here's something you can take to the board, here's something you can look at with engineers. And then as that started to compound, you're then you had enough buy-in to say, you know, maybe let's look deeper into this. Maybe let's try to predict some things. Maybe I can have a team of more than just one person and things like that. Yeah. And I think the the other big motivator for me joining the company is I mean, it, it was a really special company. The leadership just got it in a way that I don't think you always see. Mm. Um, so I, yes, I took a strategic approach for how I wanted to make my mark on the company, but I was also blessed to have a leadership team that really, you know, wanted to trust me, wanted to support me, um, wanted to uh, come up with cool new things we could do and gave me a lot of freedom um, and support in doing that. So. Uh, I definitely had to spend a lot of time getting clear on what I thought the value of every step I took was, but I didn't have to fight hard. You know, I, I had a group of people that was very open to um, being flexible and trying new things and experimenting. So you talked about this idea of building the team from the ground up, including even just getting corporate buy-in which is, or leadership buy-in, which obviously is like an especially big challenge when you're the head of data science at like this nascent startup with a new kind of data no one's ever worked with before. But <clears throat> one of the questions that I really had looking at this was, how, like, was there an evolution in terms of the uh, the company's needs on the data science side? Like, did you find yourself looking for different skill sets as the company scaled? Totally. Um I think early on, I was really, really lucky um, with the first person that we hired because she was a generalist. She had a neuroscience PhD. She had started um, a startup right before she joined and sort of decided she wanted to be in a, a slightly more specialized role, but be embedded in a company. And so I got really lucky with my first couple of hires um, were people like that and people um, who were happy to kind of dive into any problem, write SQL, just do the grunt work, like be in the trenches with me doing the things that aren't necessarily so glamorous. But, um, you know, the, the flip side of that is that they were motivated and in the same way that I am um, by getting feedback from people in other disciplines. So they got to work with the product team closely and the engineering team closely. They got to have a lot of autonomy. So I think uh, finding people that can be that generalist early on was really important. Um, as the team grew, then we um, started to specialize further. So the first thing that I did was hire devoted data analysts, because by that point, um, once you've given the product team a little bit of value, they have more and more and more questions, um, which is great, but it does take a, take a lot of time to be running those SQL queries and making sure they have what they need. So um, we hired a couple analysts to uh, be more sort of requests oriented um, and to also get our dashboards up and running because yay, we finally got started to have dashboards, which is a big moment in every startup's evolution. Um, and then sort of the second layer of that was um, as the, the company as a whole started to diversify the different things that we were all doing, um, whether that was uh, beefing up the app store or starting to build out the health function on the watch. Um, I hired more data scientists that seemed like they would be a good fit for those specific problems, um, especially in the health domain. We, <laughs> we ran all of our calibrations tests ourselves. So we were strapping, um, you know, beta versions of the watch 
onto like our, our captive audience of engineers and other employees at the company and making them walk to get coffee and, and measuring their step count and seeing what it was like when they had a coffee cup in their hand. Um, we had to recruit people to go run around a park uh, when we were calibrating the heart rate monitor. <laughs> um, so it was, it was nice at that point to have devoted data scientists who had some research background similar to to those kinds of problems um, to work you know, full time on that stuff rather than more of the generalist product development stuff we had done in the past. So when you're um, looking for, say, generalists to join a data team, is there like anything specific you look for? I, I find it really hard to distinguish the people who are good in a role like that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's hard to tell from, you know, any kind of hard skill or a line on a resume. Um, I think for me, it happened to be people with research backgrounds who um, were used to doing dirty work. I think that translated well into kind of a generalist role, but I don't think that necessarily always has to be the case. Um, I think one thing that I did screen for was trying to get a sense of the candidate's motivations. Um, are they more motivated by kind of the impact they have and by um, having some autonomy and I don't know, like a nicer way to say like feeling important, but <laughs> I can say it because that's a big motivator for me. I want to feel valued. I want to have that person to person affirmation that like, hey, this was really helpful. Um, and not not everybody's like that. You can be really, really strong data scientist and just kind of want to be in your corner doing your own thing um, or, you know, be more focused on certain, you know, engineering problems, things like that. So I think I put a lot of weight on what are the motivators for these people. Um, and then I think the final thing too is, and you guys know this because I think this is something you strongly advocate for is uh, personal projects. So whether that's in the case of my first hire, having experience playing a founder role before, um, or um, just doing some interesting side project based on something you're passionate about. Um, that this is kind of a broader comment than just for, you know, hiring a generalist data scientist, but um, those side projects tell you a lot about what motivates the person and what they're strong at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say like, Oh, how did you find these people? How did you screen for these people? The biggest advantage was like Pebble was a known entity. It was a cool company. Um, and we had interests from a lot of really smart and qualified people. So that's a huge advantage that, um, I had at Pebble that is certainly not not universal. That's true. And I've heard this from mentors, like so many mentors before, when you talk about um, personal projects, but but what it tells you about people's motivations. Because there is, you know, there is a, a category of people who's like, oh, I'm into data science because I heard about it and it sounds mm -hmm. cool. And like, that's kind of as, as far as the thinking goes, which is fine. Like that, that's the level of, can you want to be like, hmm, maybe I should look into and explore this potentially interesting field and see if it's for me. But it's not the level of motivation that gets you to like, I want a significant part of my career arc to be immersed <laughs> in this field. And so there's the difference between this kind of like casual interest, which you see from, uh, oh, I did like this Coursera project. I did like this, you know, pre-prepared for me thing. And like something that's much more sincere. And it's like, huh, I noticed this interesting problem that I have in my own life. And like, 
figured maybe I could solve with data science for myself. I'm like, here's how I proceeded as a, a curious, intellectually interested person would proceed with this like new set of tools. So there's a big difference between those two sources of motivation. They matter a lot to a lot of people. It's also funny how that ties into another thing, Susan, you were talking about, which was your employee number one and her sort of startup attitude. And mm-hmm. Ed, what you've just finished describing there is like a series of, of problems that a person is experiencing for themselves and that they want to solve for themselves using data science. Kind of cool to see that reflected sort of in two different ways in this conversation. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think this is probably true for a lot of hiring managers at startups, um, but it's definitely true for me. I love to see entrepreneurial experience on a resume, even if it's something just totally silly that completely failed. That to me is like, okay, I, I kind of get how this person thinks. That's a, that's a particular kind of mindset. Um, but I think, I think the thing about, um, the personal projects, like what it shows me, you know, if, if I had to define data science, it's just looking for opportunities within the data that you have. Um, and if you are not kind of, willing to bang your head against a wall until you get a solution, you're going to have a hard time. And I think a lot of people new to the field underestimate um, how grueling that process can be. So to, to see that in a personal project always speaks really strongly to me that like, all right, this person is scrappy. This person um, will kind of go out on a limb to, to solve the problem in any way they can figure out. They can, you know, they'll throw any tool at it that they have at their disposal. Like, that to me is an attitude that that tends to work well. Um, I think in, in kind of any data science role, but certainly when you're early. I, I was just going to say I, f- I find it a fascinating point to make when it comes th- that you're making in, in, when it comes to data science in particular, just because from from what it seems, data science is one of those few fields where it's not just that you're not sure that you'll be able to come up with an answer. It's like you're not even sure that there is an answer, that there are patterns in the data that will allow you to predict what you want to predict. And so in that sense, maybe it does have more more in common with the startup thing, but it, it also sort of intrinsically requires someone to be willing to, as you say, bang their head against the wall without even knowing that there's necessarily a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, um, which is kind of a different sort of psychology from a like software engineering, say, or something like that. Oh, totally. And I mean, I think this is why, um, you know, people with research backgrounds um, transition into this role. It sort of is reminiscent of of what you do in research, or even if you don't have that background, but you kind of have that mindset or that's something that interests you. That's that that kind of aligns with what the job is like. Um, I do think one of the the things that I have had to learn um, in my own career is knowing when uh, we've reached good enough <laughs> and when we've hit the 80% solution. And that's something that, uh, you know, I, I always see people struggle with that. Yes, you can always build a better mousetrap, but at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to add value to a business here. So, so we can't totally be a research organization. You have to know when to know when to stop uh, hitting that particular wall and kind of move on. That's true. There's something in this also that's especially interesting in the data science field, which is like, you, 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 because if you're a manager, you don't necessarily know if someone comes back to you and says like, Hey, couldn't find anything. If that's like, you know, if there was nothing there or if it's like this person didn't look hard enough. And that's like one of the reasons why it's particularly interesting in this field when someone has entrepreneurial experience, even when it's minor, because it shows you, okay, like I can, I can throw this person at a problem and like, 
it's it's not you know it's not necessarily like they won't stop until they get a solution, but they're not gonna you know start walking, bump into a problem, and then like come back to you with their tail tucking their legs and like, <laughs> go exactly as planned. Blah blah blah. They're gonna do some extra digging, and that's that's the key to this because like like you said, like there's no guarantee that a solution exists. So you need the kinds of people who will not stop after they hit that first obstacle. Yeah, and I think you know it's really interesting in this conversation we're talking about a lot of personalities traits or just personal motivations interests um and i think it's it's always a little depressing to me when i hear hear data scientists or hear hiring managers talk a lot about python or technical skills like yes that's important we know that um but and i think people anchor on those because it seems like it's an easy box to check like mm -hmm. yes or no can you write python code um but for me, um, the most important skills are, I wouldn't even call these soft skills, but just indicators on the kind of thinker a person is, um, the kind of critical thinking they tend to do and the kind of um, problem solving techniques they tend to use. And so I think that that is particularly hard when you're coming into the field um, to to have an idea of what those traits look like and how you can highlight the ones that you have um, in a way that uh, a hiring manager can really, you know, will resonate with. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's not just about being able to write the code. Otherwise you'd, you'd be a software engineer. Well, and, and then to piggyback off that, like what advice would you have then to somebody who's trying to break in? Let's say, let's say with your, your background, cause we're all a bunch of biased physicists here, but um, <laughs> if you were talking to a physicist today and you're saying, Hey, you know, um, here's, here's like the, the one thing that, you know, people are going to tend to ignore, but I'm going to tell you to focus on this one thing. Um, what would it be? Um, in terms of a skill or like a strategy, what are, actually, let's do both. Actually one skill, one strategy. If you, if you've got them, no pressure. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> um, well, the strategy is easy cause we already talked about it, but I, I do think it's, um, building a personal project off of a real world data set. Um, and, and, you know, having a robust online profile um, on either GitHub or, um, you know, through medium write-ups that just not that, not that you're trying to become a medium superstar or anything, but just that you can point an employer to like, hey, here's what I did. That's my strategic advice. Um, in terms of skill, I think, you know, it really depends. I think the, the step before that is probably to get a good idea of what kind of data scientist you want to be or what environment you want to work in. I think that's really hard for me coming out of academia. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know what job title was appropriate for me. Um, but I was sort of interested in startups and I knew the things that I hated about academia, you know, were kind of the bureaucratic elements. I wanted to get away from that. And so, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot more information available online now um, of just blogs you can read and different people you can kind of follow on social media in the data science world. So you can get a sense of like, okay, what kinds of people are working in a startup environment and even mm -hmm. like subsets of that, like what's healthcare like um, compared to online gaming? Um, so that's sort of, I think once you have an idea of that, um, you know, you can start to see how your, these personality traits, how yours align with um, the people in the field you want to be in. But if I had to pick one, um, the most important thing to me, and it's one that I don't hear talked about, I mean, it's sort of implicit, but um, 
is numerical intuition. Mm. Um, I, I think it's really hard to test for, but, um, you know, being able to, um, spot patterns, like ask questions about numbers that are getting reported, um, you know, it's sort of hard to, uh, put into words, but it's something that, you know, you'll, you'll see people with physics backgrounds have been trained to have an intuition about how to approach problems that, uh, involve statistics. So to me, it's like, this is a step away from just your statistical knowledge, but it's, can you look at a graph and have something interesting to say about it? That sounds silly, right? It sounds like, I mean, it goes up into the right, like I get it, but just to use my accelerometer example, um, I was able to figure out what to do with that data because I could look at that graph and see the inflection point and mm -hmm. say, oh, this means something. And I could actually, if I had it in front, it'd be a lot easier to talk about, but um, I, I could spell out in detail to other people looking at that graph what that meant and why this is a good cutoff point. Like I could make a case for that. So that's that's the number one thing I'm always screening for. Um, and I think if, you know, if you are doing a boot camp, you're learning Python skills, you're brushing up on your statistics, just doing basic um, analyses like that and sort of talking through the evidence that you have in front of you and being able to make a strong case for a point of view off of something numerical, um, that to me, that to me makes a great data scientist. And it really does speak to so much, including the communication aspect. Um, and, and almost on, on that note, you alluded to the medium thing. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about one of the really cool things that you've written a lot about, which is email. And it's, it's something that a oh, lot yeah. of people have taken for granted. We all went around, we read your blog posts about this. Um, <laughs> we're really impressed by it because they're fascinating reads. So uh, could you just take a second to kind of walk people through a little bit, like what, your, what you think of email, your email strategy, any of your thoughts on that? Yes, I will try to be brief because as you noted, I have written like four blog posts about it because I'm really interested in this strategy. But um, so I started writing cold emails and just to clarify what I mean by that, just an email to a person that you don't know. Um, I started writing those when I was trying to start a software company and I knew what I wanted to sell. I knew who I wanted to sell to. I didn't have any way to reach them. So I did a lot of research on strategies for how you email a stranger <laughs> and how you find, um, you know, to target the right person at a company. Um, and through doing that with that, that company, I was able to get meetings um, with, you know, huge department stores, like companies that you've heard of that have no reason to talk to me other than that I made a good pitch over email to the right person. Um, so I advocate for taking this approach. I've used it also. Um, uh, for consulting gigs, as I've just done, you know, little whenever I uh, needed to get a new contract, like cold mm -hmm. emailing is something that I'll do. Um, but yeah, so it's something I've advocated for with people that are trying to break into the industry, because we all know that sending a resume to a jobs website is just throwing it down a black hole. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true in any industry. The additional challenge with data science is that a resume doesn't give you a strong signal um, on whether a person has this skill set because it is so interdisciplinary and there is not a well-defined path of how you become a successful data scientist. Um, so cold emailing is a tactic that you can take to get your foot in the door at a company that interests you. So um, my strategy is, or the strategy that I give to people is to 
research companies. This is all, again, tailored to startups just because that's my experience. So um, for startups, you would be looking on AngelList, finding companies you're interested in, doing research on LinkedIn to figure out who the hiring manager for that position is. Um, you want to email the person who asked for the job to be filled, um, who is likely somebody mm. that would be managing you or managing someone who would be managing you. So like a head of data, um, possibly a VP of engineering, VP of product. You can research on LinkedIn to find the org structure to find the right person. Um, but I advocate for emailing the hiring manager, um, who's the the boss, kind of the, the person mm -hmm. to ask for the job to be filled and not a recruiter. Um, because the advantage of sending a cold email is number one, you get direct access to the decision maker. So why not go for the person at the top? Um, but more importantly, I think the advantage of a cold email is you're framing your entire interaction with this company. So if you can put yourself in front of a hiring manager and give them an impression of who you are, what you can do, you're setting yourself up for success through the whole interview process versus with a recruiter, you're just getting to the initial phone screen. You know, they're not going to be um, in the room past that kind of that initial stage. They're just facilitating the process. But the hiring manager is going to be telling, you know, they put the committee together on on uh, who's going to interview you. They're going to be telling those people, hey, you know, um, Susan, like she emailed me. She did this really cool project about um, clustering on Twitter. Um, she's got really strong this and that, like, uh, you know, like she, they're they're already pitching you to the people that are going to be interviewing you. Now, this is all assuming you sent a good email. So that's why I say email the hiring manager. Um, you can see on my blog post uh, the templates that I use to send these cold emails. Um, we will link to those in the okay. in the description of the uh, yeah yeah it's a uh, yeah. So the the website is datasciencecareermap.com. If you for some reason do not see the link, um, I feel like. I'm an ad now, but, um, but no, that's great. You can find it, but um, awesome. yeah, but so, and then in the content of the email, it's really important to um, keep it concise, be direct, and you know, present yourself. Uh, you know, don't be doing things like, oh, like I'm transitioning from quantitative finance, but I'm working really hard to boot boost my data science skills. No, like you're transitioning from quantitative finance. You have all the skills to uh, like kill this job, you know? So I, I talk in detail about kind of the attitude you want to bring to the email, but I'll break it down for you just at a high level of what I always do. It's three paragraphs, intro and conclusion. Those two are generally pretty easy. The one that is difficult and that you should tailor to every company you talk to is a little pitch you give in the middle. Hmm. And I keep it to like four sentences. One is who you are. Uh, two and three are highlighting a past project you've done that you can link to. Um, that tends to boost response rates if you can link to a Medium post or a very well-commented GitHub um, of the project. Um, and yeah, so that's where you you really want to be showing, not telling the skills that you have. And um, highlighting ones that are directly relevant to this job. And then the fourth sentence, and this one is really key and really interesting. So this is why I'm giving this long-winded explanation. But um, the fourth sentence is where you communicate why you're excited to work at this company. Mm. And that one can be the kicker because it's your opportunity to show that you have an insight about what they do as a business. Um, 
And it doesn't have to be complicated. But like I shared with you guys earlier, I said to Pebble, like, I'm really excited. Actually, you asked me this question. So you were already having insight. Same one I had when I interviewed at Pebble. I said, you know what's really exciting to me about you guys? is your hardware company. And, and I have no idea. <laughs> There's nobody has any idea of how you work with data in yep. a hardware company environment. So what did that communicate to them? That showed that I had a high level understanding of the industry and how, um, you know, my domain would be different in this industry versus ones that I'd worked with previously. So I was thinking it kind of this conceptual systems level already, which is good. And, and more importantly, it showed that I'm a person who is excited by um, unsolved problems. So you don't have to do something complicated in that fourth sentence, but it is your opportunity to really um, get across that you understand um, what kind of role you would be playing. And uh, yeah, you can, you can see the exact templates um, in the post, but I guess to kind of wrap it up, <laughs> um, it's, I think people feel awkward sending these emails. The reality is a lot of hiring managers solicit on LinkedIn. Yep. Um, I'm hiring, email yes. me here. They are desperate to hear from talent that can meet their needs. Um, and, you know, you, yeah, I, I think especially in startups, the, that kind of um, gumption is respected and you should feel confident in, in just putting yourself out there and, uh, you know, jump, skipping, skipping the resume hoop <laughs> and, and framing what you, what you want to present and what you want to say to the person in charge. Yes. I, I like, I think we all 100% agree with everything you've said. It's funny how like we, so we coach our students as well on this kind of strategy independently and independently. There's a lot of similar stuff. Um, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, uh, hiring managers are hiring all the time. That's like almost why they're called hiring managers. It's, it's not like, oh, am I going to bother this person? You're helping them crush one of their KPIs. You're helping them, you know, go up to their CEO, like at the end of the quarter and be like, yes, I successfully was able to hire this many people. You're helping, you know, them do the one thing they're trying to do in their professional life. Like that's, that's good. That's good. You shouldn't feel embarrassed about it. Um, <clears throat> You're 100 percent right. Like I, the 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 pitch structure, the uh, you have to like show the person what you've done. Definitely, um, why are you interested and passionate about this company? If the hiring manager has written a blog post, um, it's amazing if you can say, "Hey, I read your blog post. What I loved about it was X, Y, and Z." Like that's like, I mean, when when people do that to me about a blog post that I've written, I'm sure this happens to you too, Susan. Um, when if, if somebody reaches out to me on LinkedIn. Someone that I otherwise would not, you know, be open to connecting to. And if they open with something like, Hey, I read your blog post. It's amazing. You know, changed my life, whatever. Well, I'm almost certainly going to accept their connection request <laughs> because they went right for my ego and I, I can't resist that. <laughs> yeah. It's totally true. I think the, you know, the door is open for you to take, I wouldn't even say take this risk, but take advantage of, of, the 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 strategic avenue of communication i guess um but the thing you have to make sure not to do is don't shoot yourself in the foot by sending a bad email um i see people who are great communicators who can write great blog posts describing like what they've done on their data science project that 
will allow their insecurity to just come through in little nuances of language, like the word, but don't put, but in your email, you know, just change it to, and doesn't matter, but, um, you know, you'll see people kind of frame things in a negative way or, um, write sentences like, Oh, I, I just a quick email. I, I know you're really busy. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Like, well, you're taking up my time already. I'm reading your email. So just get to the point, you know? Um, so yeah, I do think that, uh, you know, the, to be successful, this strategy, your content has to be right. And there's a lot of kind of good email, like good hygiene practices almost that I think it's hard to learn. Um, and you know, when, when you're new to doing this and the other thing too, is like that pitch, you can hone that a hundred times, you know, you can spend yep. an hour tailoring that for every company that you reach out to. Um, and it's and worth it. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. It really is. Um, because, you know, you're not going to get a yes every time. You might not even, you're not going to even get a response every time, frankly. But, um, but you know, it's putting you in the room with, with, the, with people that um, can give you a leg up. So it's, it's really worth um, figuring out how to do right. Well, and, and another benefit to it that's sort of less um, less immediately obvious if you're used to applying to stuff through jobs boards is just the feedback. I mean, like when you send somebody an email, as you say, you know, you, what if your response rate is 30%? Well, if you're sending 10 applications by email a week, you're getting three people, three experts are looking at your resume and saying, hey, um, you're not a good fit for these reasons. And you can iterate on that feedback. So Totally. Yeah. Well, so one thing I, I did want to make sure we got the chance to talk about too over time, uh, we've definitely found that the, the tools that have been used in data science have started to get more and more, um, not, not simpler, but, but more user-friendly. You can deal with higher and higher levels of abstraction. Um, at first, it, you, know, you had to code your, your backpropagation by hand. Now everything's handled internally. Um, now, you know, then it was grid search CV handled hyperparameter search. Now we're getting to the point where Bayesian optimization is helping out with uh, parameter search as well. And so do you see a, a continually evolving role for data scientists in the future? Or are we going to get to a point where data scientists are sort of more like truck drivers where they get automated away entirely? Um, I doubt the latter would happen because I, I still believe that, um, you know, the, the interdisciplinary nature of the job requires someone who is um, pulling pieces of information together and able to look at a data set and find opportunities in it. And I think that there is a um, level of creativity there that would be hard to automate. Um, I think in terms of uh, deployment, that's always been a difficult area for data scientists. I think partly because people that are attracted to the field um, are like weaker on that. Um, and so that's one thing that I hope we will see continue um, to get easier. Right now, there's always sort of a tenuous relationship between data science and, you know, either the data engineers that get hired to sort of pick up the crumbling pizzas of the data scientist code or, um, or you know, the broader engineering team who's trying to build, build out um, infrastructure for you to be able to um, send your models out into the wild. And I still, still feel that process is really um, kind of shaky. It requires a lot of human to human interaction. Like there's not always a set process for how you get from model to fully deployed model in a scalable way. And um, yeah, that, that barrier between data science and traditional software engineering 
is one that I've seen continually kind of get um, more and more porous, um, which is good. I think, um, yeah, so, and I, and I think there's a lot of, not even necessarily that those processes need to be automated, but that we can have, um, uh, you know, well-defined structures for this is how you do this in this environment versus this one. These are the trade-offs. Like a lot of that I still feel is not well understood um, by people in the field. Um, so I think that's that's the area that I think will just continue to improve um, so that data scientists can be more effective at what they do. Yeah, it's, it's sort of this funny thing about data science where everything is new, everything old is new again. And, and so um, I just remember, I, I don't know if you've seen the Fast AI or if you've done the Fast AI courses or check them out, but um, mm-hmm. I still remember sort of like parts of the course where Jeremy Howard, who gives gives the course, he'll say stuff like, yeah, and you know, we're not entirely sure, this, like this thing is an open question and this thing is an open question. And he's referring to like really important, significant concepts. Like, it, yeah. you know, it, they're not that far off from like just back propagation. Um, and, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see the field gradually explored and, and how much there is still to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy to me. I, I left graduate school in 2011 and the word data science was not even really part of the vernacular. Um, so I do try to keep that in mind that, you know, the field is not that old, um, and we are constantly finding, uh, new ways to use kind of the skills that those of us in the industry have developed. And I think still fighting over a lot of what the definitions are and how much you should know about X versus Y. Um, so that's that's one reason why I feel like for people new to the industry, it's good to keep kind of a more generalized mindset, um, even as you pick up specific skills that, uh, you know, don't get don't get scared away by one person's description of what it is that we do because it doesn't feel like it fits you. Um, there's still a lot of debate about exactly what a good data scientist is. I think the important thing is like get embedded in a company and and prove that you can drive value. And whether you fit the exact label or not um, doesn't really matter if if you're if you're good. You know if you're providing value in what you do. And is there a particular uh, scale or type of company that you'd recommend to people who are looking to break in? I think it depends on um, what kind of environment you want to work in. Um, on the startup end, I mean, hey, there's there's a lot you can learn at a very small company. Um, I started my career at a startup of about 50 people, and that uh, had four people working in uh, working with data in the domain that I was in. That was a great first job for me because it was small enough that. I had direct access to the CEO. I was able to have a real impact on the business and uh, solve meaningful problems for them. But I also had a team that could support me. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I walked in the door not even knowing how to write SQL. I'd written Python code as part of my graduate research, but SQL, you know, you don't, you don't do that in physics school. Um, so, you know, I, I had to have a team that could kind of say, hey, this is, this is the query we use. I had to kind of learn it on the job. So. Um, I think in, in, if you do want to work in startups, it's kind of an ideal way to start. Um, there's certainly arguments to be made for starting at a bigger company. Um, if you are not someone who, uh, really thrives on independence and, um, a sense of autonomy, like if you, if you feel a sense of security being, um, embedded in kind of a bigger system, there's a lot you can learn in those kinds of environments too. So it depends on, on, um, you know, what you're looking for. 
Yeah, well, I, I think that's great advice for anyone, and especially people early on when they're trying to figure out, you know, what it's okay for them to move towards and, and what opportunities fit well with them. To factor in your personality, I feel like, is a very undervalued, um, undervalued <laughs> question. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's, uh, like you were talking about this earlier, like how do you know what industry to go into? Well, one important aspect is like what kinds of people are in each of these industries and like do these personalities align with yours? And like are... are the kinds of people who are like you in this industry or that industry. That's like, I haven't heard that from anyone really before articulated, but it's, I think it's totally right. And it's like, at first it might seem like, oh, it's so hard. Like, how do I know this until I embed myself in the industry? But one, one way that you can do this is um, you can kind of do this on Twitter. Um, you can mm-hmm. go on Twitter and figure out which kinds of personalities are there in each industry, follow a bunch of people and then prune your followers until you're following the people that align well with your interests and then go, mm-hmm. that's the industry that I'm, that I'm interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest learning for me coming out of academia into the business world was like, oh, I, I spent all these years of my life um, in the, you know, in educational environments thinking that I needed to learn skills. Like I needed to know things mm. and know how to do things. And the reality of working in a company is, a lot of business is just trying to deal with other people and get a group of people moving in a direction. Little did I know that MBAs exist who like spend years. This is a whole area of study that you can go um, and read research about how you get people organized and um, you know able to work together. But uh, yeah, I mean, even in highly technical environments, I think business is still mainly about people. Um, and uh, maybe maybe AI will change that. I'm kidding. Um, but, but, you know, until we're all automated away, um, which I don't think will happen. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's the personality traits and the types of um, people you're comfortable working with and that you understand how to communicate with have a, have a big impact on um, how successful you can be. I think that's a great note to uh, to leave things on and, and a really fascinating discussion. Um, thanks so much, Susan. I mean, this has been like an absolute pleasure. So much so much content too on the email side. I, I feel like we've got a million things to link to, including your Twitter, which uh, you're quite active on oh. as well too. So uh, we'll make yeah, sure to link to great. that. Yeah, <laughs> great. Thank you guys. It was really fun talking to you. You do.